You are now entering the transit zone. Welcome back to the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Margaret Kingston in Comboy, New South Wales. And Tim Dunlop in Southbank in Melbourne. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Beerpai people of the Port Macquarie region of New South Wales. We pay respect to their elders. Well, Tim, Margot and I are recording this election campaign podcast as week two of that campaign begins. Week one was a scrappy, messy affair, to say the least, dominated in the media by gotchas and gaffs coverage. With Greens leader Adam Bant, the recipient of another attempted gotcha question from an Australian financial review journalist at the National Press Club, responding with a Google it, mate, to some applause from those there. For those of us hoping for a series of robust leaders' debates, it was announced the first one will take place this Wednesday in Brisbane, hosted by Rupert Murdoch's Sky News and moderated by Sky's Kieran Gilbert. Not exactly an easily accessible event in our democracy, as it obviously should be. Who knows how it will go. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison has announced Senator Anne Ruston as the new Health Minister to replace retiring Greg Hunt, if the coalition is re-elected. Labor has seized upon this news to remind voters about Rustin's earlier comments in the Senate about the hard-to-sustain universality of Medicare and other services, giving them a chink to exploit. Naturally, all three of us are bursting with questions about the week we've all just experienced. We'll get to ask just a few of them. Margot, you first. Well, what has the media got right? And I'd like to give a shout out to my sister who edits The Age and who has managed to convince Fairfax to actually cover one seat in detail. They've got a rolling online coverage with two or three reporters, more than one update a day where they're going to different suburbs, they're looking at different issues, different controversies, asking all the candidates for their reaction. And so you're just starting to get a feel for what's happening on the ground. And as you know, I've been arguing for decades to to live in a seat and cover it each day and cover the local story and get the perspective of the big picture politics on the ground. So there's another thing the ABC's doing. They're doing a, a regular podcast talking to local ABC journos on the ground in each seat to get a feel. That's another one I like. One of the things I find least useful is when you get a press gallery reporter to to do the rounds in a state and ask the strategists and come up with their general palaver. And The Guardian, for the second time, has basically got off the bus, done a lot more on-the-ground reporting. I like that too. As you probably know, my preference for the bus is to have a pool and to rotate that pool regularly. The political media to decide on one issue a day that they would like to explore. I don't know if you read um, Margaret Simons this morning, but she had a real go at Catherine Murphy, quite rightly, who excused all the the gaffe questions by saying that the leaders weren't putting out policy. And Meg said, well, how about you decide on a policy that is of concern to voters and focus on that for a day? Don't let yourself be directed by the leaders. There are some... um, some good things. 
but they're, they're on the margins. Yes, The Guardian too, the Lenore Taylor editorial about how they're approaching the election. Closer, I guess, Tim, to what Jay Rosen, the journalism academic in the United States, would call the citizen's agenda. Tim, I heard the press conference with Scott Morrison Sunday, and I just found those full cry press conferences with all the journalists yelling at the prime minister or whoever's out front. Very depressing, really, and just such an obvious way for someone like Scott Morrison, who just thrives on that, to avoid and evade and just put his shtick out there, which he promptly did on federal ICAC and Deves in Warringah, etc. So those presses, those yelling presses are pretty useless, aren't they? Completely useless and insulting to the intelligence of audiences. You might remember Greg Jericho came to some prominence a few years ago by pointing out exactly this point. It's probably nearly a decade ago that he did that, that he was sitting there waiting for them to ask particular questions about a policy that he had some um, particular vested interest in finding about out about as a citizen and and none of that happened and there was a huge rallying around from journalists saying yeah you're absolutely right greg that that's true um and here we are 10 years later and we're still doing the same thing as margo said they're still on the bus they're still taking their lead from politicians setting the agenda rather than chasing whether it's on a daily basis or whatever the sorts of questions that we, the people, might actually want to have answers to around policy and trying to set the agenda themselves rather than just following a script from the Morrison mob. So Margot's question is a really good question. I think, what are they doing right? And what she said at the end there, I agree with completely. They are doing some things right. I'd add, seeing you brought up your sister, the editorial they did the other day about the age not being able to support a Morrison government if they don't do something about ICAC. That was good to see. I think New Daily's doing some good stuff. Laura Tingle's doing some good stuff. But as Margot just said, you know, all of that sort of tends to be, it's almost the exception rather than the rule, or it's, it's on the margins. What's really noticeable to me about this coverage, and we get it every fucking year or every fucking election, is it just runs to this kabuki script and the overall aspect of it is quite poorly covered. Even the good stuff that does happen tends to get a bit buried in the avalanche of rubbish that um, surrounds it. Margot, what was depressing to me, you just mentioned the bus, must be more than a decade ago, you and I on ABC Radio, it was more than a decade ago, it's probably 15, 16 years ago, we did a series on ABC Radio on my evening show about getting off the bus. And we called it the Magical Mystery Tours. And we heard from journalists that they didn't even know where they were going the next morning. They got destination slipped under their door at 3 a.m. And I'm reading now from journalists that exactly the same is happening to journalists. They don't know their destination. They rock up there on the bus. So we have Political parties organising the magical mystery tours, arriving at some destination for the cosplay, for the confected event. In that respect, Margot, nothing has changed. Is that right? Something very big has changed, and that's the independence. What we're getting from the independence campaigns is massive on-the-ground action, massive on-the-ground action that is being self-reported the greatest innovation, of course, is, is Zoe Daniel. She has her own podcasts interviewing experts on, on the issues. She had an aged care forum where she asked the residents of Goldstein to come along and tell her what their problems are. I listened to something on Tuesday night 
where the Our Democracy Network had all minor parties, major parties, Labor, Greens, Reason Party, Liberal Democrats, Independents, Independence Day Act candidates saying what their policies were on integrity. There's a whole different world happening there where the, the community's engaged. I think that Monique Ryan has 1,400 volunteers, though he's got 1,100. Kate Cheney, who started very late, has 600. So there is an actual participatory democracy campaign happening on the ground where the issues are being discussed, where the dirty tricks are being analysed, where the local media is completely reinvigorated and crucial. Now, you know, one thing to say about that is that in the inner you know, in the rich inner, inner city seats, there is local media, apart from Goldstein, really. It's just incredibly exciting. Did you see the leak from the Labor campaign where no Labor candidate was allowed to say one thing without being um, cleared by head office? It's got to the stage where the, they don't trust their own candidates. This movement is shaking it up to the extent that you're better off as a journalist being on the ground in those seats than you are being on the bus. We can't go another step, can we, without talking about the gotchas and the gaff, which here we are in the second week. The gaff, this is the Albanese so-called gaff, is still being prosecuted by many in the media. Tim, I quite like the Barry Cassidy, the former anchor of Insiders on ABC television, his formulation, which he posted on Twitter, which was, if a journalist asks a question to which he or she knows the answer... The politician, correspondingly, is then entitled to do what Adam Band did at the National Press Club, Google it, mate. So we saw that Australian Financial Review reporter tried on again quite blatantly at the National Press Club, got the Google it, mate from Band. So do you anticipate the obvious and blatant gotchas will now diminish as we go into the second week? God, I don't know, Peter. Um, they're still talking about it. They're, they're now using poll results to keep the whole issue alive, not just to keep it alive, but to justify it. It's it's like saying, see, look, we told you it mattered. The, the polls have gone down for Albanese, so therefore it mattered, which kind of, you know, begs the question, well... Of course the polls have gone down because it's all you fucking well talked about for the last week, you know. you It creates its own momentum sort of thing, and and that's my concern with this. I don't know. The, the Adam Bant thing kind of nipped it in the bud a little bit, but it, it didn't stop insiders spending 90 minutes talking about it. I, I think it's, it's reached the point where you can say the thinking is kind of if the gaffe doesn't matter, then we as journalists don't matter because we've decided that it matters. So, you know, they're kind of their own self-interest is entirely bound up now with the fact that the gaffe has to matter. So they're, they're going to keep prosecuting it. There's a problem, though. There's a problem, though, Tim, isn't there? It was shocking that Albanese didn't know the unemployment rate and it was shocking that he didn't know the, the cash rate. You know, I'm, I'm no economist. I knew that. I've got a bigger point to make about Albanese. I thought that was shocking. And the problem was that the media jumped on it and said, all right, we've got our narrative, let's go. Boom, boom, boom. And they've been, they've been catching him out ever since. But there is no doubt that he is a terrible campaigner. And, and the, the feeling I got early on was that he had the same vibe as Shorten, slightly vague, not focused, no other overarching narrative. You know, I, I've been screaming on Twitter all week that 
well, I've been doing it for a few elections actually, that it's, it's integrity stupid. If you're going to have a campaign that this man is unfit to govern and go small target, you've got to frame it that way. And they got an absolute gift this week when he walked away from a federal ICAC. Look, just to go back to insiders, I thought that insiders was diabolical. There was one serious issue of importance to the people that arose this week, which is um, Scott Morrison walking away from any Federal Integrity Commission. At the end of the week, Albanese said, I will legislate a strong one before Christmas. Albanese's statement wasn't mentioned, and the ICAC thing was, a, oh dear, you know, uh, maybe he's sacrificing, the, uh, maybe he's sacrificing the, the teal seats. There was not a word about the fact that we have a faltering democracy, we have a deeply corrupt government with secrecy, with rorts, with deals for mates, with failures on climate change policy due to donation um, influence. It is a, an issue on which the Australian people are basically united. More coalition voters and Labor voters support one, and they want a strong one, to actually, as journalists, not say this is a huge issue and to carry on basically saying may the best campaigner win and we'll help the best campaigner win it was just mind-boggling when I when I read my sister's editorial yesterday I just I breathed out I think for the first time since the campaign began I don't know what is wrong with Labor Thank God we've got the Independence Day movement because at the moment they are the only effective opposition to this government. I agree with you, Labor are doing a bad job in terms of presenting a narrative and doing all of that stuff. Albanese doesn't seem to be a confident campaigner, whatever that He's means not in the greater scheme of things. But yeah, okay. But it sort of all goes together. Labor know that they start behind. They're going to be attacked on everything by the media. So they're second-guessing themselves at every point. Yep. So they're, you know... It's just a terrible failure of confidence. It is, but it doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from this, you know, three years of harassment that's come to a head in the first week of the campaign in the in the form of this gaff, 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 gaff that they're going on. No wonder Labor's too scared to say boo. No wonder they put restrictions on their members. Um, you know, you've got to check before that you say anything in public because they know, they just know that particularly the Murdoch press are going to grab and twist anything that they say. So they're living in terror, which is exactly the result that that part of the media wants. They want Labor feeling like that. They want people feeling that Labor are not a legitimate alternative. They want Labor feeling like they're, you know, they've, they've got to get over this hurdle of media coverage. So the two things go together. You can't talk about them separately. Even as I acknowledge the point that you're saying that Labor are failing to do that, but they're, they're failing to do it within a very particular media environment it makes it almost impossible. There's nothing Labor can do that will not get jumped on. Yeah, a big example of that is that was a huge scoop by Samantha Maiden early in the week that the government was going to pay Rachel Miller 500 grand, a million, including legal costs and all the rest of it. And they knew nothing about it and it was nothing about Tudge. But it looks like it was about uh, sexual harassment by another Liberal. There is no way that they get a big payout like that. I reckon that payout is about not revealing that there was a 
serial harassment of Rachel by liberals. And to, to let Morrison, as he always does, as he d- got, does at last election, he just loudly says, I don't know, and they move on. Because if they don't move on, he'll, you know, he'll just find another way. He'll probably walk I mean, off. That, that is an absolute yeah. scandal that we, that the taxpayers don't know why she got a, a million dollars from us for conduct that we don't know about it, let alone any of these Liberals involved going to contribute to it. Maybe I go back to that Labor learnt the wrong lesson or something, or maybe they should have taken a clean break after the disaster of Shorten. Maybe it should be Jim Chalmers standing there, someone who clearly hasn't lost their confidence, who is well-briefed, hardened from Queensland. If all this results in a corrupt, incompetent government, as Kate Cheney said, a a government of power without purpose that is all self-interested politics, nothing about future building, nothing about good governance. You know, we can blame a lot of people, but Labor has to take its share of the blame. It really does to not have... Albanese match fit and match hardened is a disgrace. Knowing what we know about the media, mm, yeah, you know we have we have to admit this. I'm happy to admit it. I'm none of this criticism of the media is coming from a place of um, labour partisanship at all. I, I I agree. I like I've kind of almost given up on them anyway. I mean, I prefer to have given that they're the only alternative party that can form government, um, that's what I'd prefer to happen. But the other thing I can't really understand about their approach is they've got a pretty good front bench. You mentioned Chalmers, but there's there's other people there. Why aren't they walking around with the team rather than doing this, you know, this, this thing that seems to happen all the time now becomes this presidential focus uh, on the leader? What, why isn't Albanese just everywhere he goes has the, the team with him and talking about his team? It's a better team. You know, using that as a framing device, it, it, it just seems really strange to me that they've, they've played into this one-on-one thing, as you've said, is to their disadvantage because he's just not very good at it at the end of the day. Mind you, another story that went through to the Keeper that really amazed me was the Governor-General directly lobbying the Prime Minister about the Chris Hartley leadership Funding. I think that one. I think that was an important story, a constitutional story, a balance of power story, indirectly a republic story, and that got virtually no traction. This just got buried with the whole reset thing. You know, this is what happens. Everybody, we're hanging around waiting for the election, and it's like once the election's announced, then we're it's all about campaigning and the election, and we we stop talking about the last fucking three years, you know, I keep swearing on just, it's really infuriating. I I think that was the good thing about that Monday night package that Laura Tingle did. She actually provided the overall three-year framing of, you know, this is what's happened over this period. These are the good points. These are the bad points. Um, This is what's coming up sort of thing. But very few people, other people are doing, other journalists are doing that. It, It just straight went into here's the campaign, and they, they treated it as this separate freestanding entity and that we're judging, we are now officially judging who we vote for on what happens in this 
finite mm. period rather than everything that's gone before. So, which is, of course, Morrison knows that, that, you know, this is this is why he waited until now to actually call the election and everything, because he knows this reset's going to happen. Um, and it works to his infinite advantage. It kind of, you know, it's like the bloody thing in Men in Black, you know, they push the button, everybody forgets that they saw the monster. And that's kind of what happened at the start of the election. Reset. Well, veterans like Laura Tingle can drag those things out of the memory hole, can't she? And recontextualise. I mean, that's exactly what she did on the 7.30 report. You're listening to another Transit Zone podcast. I'm Peter Clark with Tim Dunlop and Margot Kingston, reviewing week one of the 2022 federal election campaign. Tim. Okay, my question. You two are very experienced journalists, and one thing that often comes up in discussions on social media and everything where people like me um, criticise what the media do is you, you often get the response from the from professional journalists saying, you just don't understand how the process works. And we saw that a lot with, um, you know, during the COVID period, press conferences, etc., and there was a lot of talk about, you know, the problem is you're seeing the sausage being made and everything. So, but there's this general, it seems to me there's this general understanding that failing amongst journalists that non-journalists don't really understand um, how journalism works in the real world. So as two very experienced journalists, my question is, what do you think is the main thing that non-journalists or the audience get wrong or don't understand about journalism. Can I start the first aspect of this? I draw upon my experience teaching young journalists at various universities. I think the fact that these days journalists have to work to so many different platforms, they've got to file across a lot of different media. It's very high speed. We've all discussed in past podcasts how there's been a, a real depletion of the numbers within whether it's newspapers or radio or television they're really working hard I think that's part of what many of us don't understand the speed and the cognitive burden of being a journalist in in the contemporary digital setting I think the other aspect is that younger journalists don't have the historical memory that Laura Tingle displayed in spades when she did that overview that and that we hear from Margot all the time she can reconnect back to 1975 or something and contextualizes the younger journalists can't do that and I think the other thing that is very much hidden from us is the editorial pressure that all journalists are under the sort of writing instructions they get from editors that's my first go at it Margot I think they understand too well you know I always said when I was in the gallery that you needed a mix of your access journos for the big stories and your journos who didn't give a shit about access and wanted to get the real story. And that mix has has gone. In my day, uh, I was chief of staff of the Herald and I had 10 rounds people. And my my method of operation was you do what you like and I'll defend you from Sydney. One big thing people don't understand really is that the head office is very directive. They know what they want and they're looking for a package. You can see it in TV now. It's, I remember having an argument on Twitter with uh, someone from 
uh, in the press gallery from Channel 7. And I said, look, why are you just – it's all about – the, the pictures that, that, that Morrison and, and Albanese present and, and that you direct the pictures. And they said, oh, without the pictures, there's nothing. And I said, but there's so much if you did journalism. I think the public realises that, um, that journalists aren't in it for them. They're in it for themselves and their, um, and their, their careers. And I honestly think that the, the press gallery at the moment is doing a terrible disservice to our democracy. The youngsters who congratulate each other on Twitter for asking the question that got the gotcha and, oh dear, you know, Morrison said Mr Speaker to a journalist and, 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 and Albo did, did this wrong and that wrong. They actually believe, they actually believe that politics is a game. They don't understand that it's important, that it's crucial to our democracy. The things that are happening now are the things I like, like Margaret Simons and some philanthropists have got together and they're going to invest in hyper-local journalism. I think that the people well understand that basically political journalists are part of the system, part of the system they don't trust, and I think that's a big reason why politics reporting is now entertainment and gotchas and you know it's it's part of it's just a it's it's an effing reality show and it will only change from the bottom up with projects like Meg's and like what those philanthropists did that saved AAP which of course allows very financially insecure local media to have some decent coverage democracies all over the world are in the deepest possible shit. I mean, to have Le Pen as a serious contender this time, to have America just collapsing before our eyes in terms of um, even having honest voting, I'll just, just go back to the independence. This is what I feel about these wealthy seats. There's eight out of ten wealthiest seats in Australia. Zali's got one, right? So those are the seven wealthy seats. I would like to read John Ralston Saul about the role of the elites, that if you've got it good, you've got a duty to make the system work because if the system fails, you haven't got it good anymore. And I think those seats have a duty to stand up and elect sensational female candidates who are uh, standing on duty, who don't want to, to rise the greasy pole or, or get a good lobbying job or, or, or get a government job and actually come in and say, let us make this democracy work again. And at the moment, all that we're seeing, as usual, is the Oz. The Oz and the telly have an attack wing. They are arms of the government. Malcolm Turnbull made it that very clear to us late last year. Peter and, and Rudd's done the same. They are actively trying to destroy the independents. They're, they're actually targeting supporters of the independents, saying, because you believe that the, you know, Allegra's anti-Jewish and Zoe's anti-Jewish, whatever... This is, to me, the last chance for the wealthy elites in this country to do this country a favour. I have no faith in Labor. I think Labor has been spooked for years over climate change and by the forces against them. And as far as the Liberal Party goes, it is splitting before our eyes, as in New South Wales. I mean, for Morrison to deliberately put a candidate in Warringah who is transsexual rights are a very tricky area, right? But to put 
in someone who is outrageously transphobic and then to sacrifice their Liberal MPs in wealthy seats by saying, I agree with Tony Abbott so he can run a culture war to win Labor seats. We all know where he's going. That's where we're at. I cannot believe how quickly we've gone down the American route. To me, someone's got to take a stand here. I just hope that it's the wealthy seats. Margot, picking up on that, when I interviewed Zoe Daniel, I put it, in fact, a line very similar to what Tim Dunlop had written about. In other words, the role of capitalism in climate change. I'm asking you, do you think now, as we head into week two and the ensuing weeks of the the campaign, the federal election campaign, do you think independents themselves are being scrutinised rigorously enough about exactly how they would deal with climate change? I'm talking about the how now, not the what. I'm talking about carbon credit system. I'm talking about dirty hydrogen. I didn't get much of a clear answer from Zoe Daniel either. Now I'm talking about the role of media in scrutinising their policies, particularly in relation to climate change? To me, the Zali-Stegel bill is the way to go. And I I don't know how many independents have have backed that bill. I know that Allegra Spender's doing a a lot of work on transition, etc. But but her bill basically says we, you know, re-establish an independent body to monitor and make recommendations. And then, you know, the, the politicians work it out. But the, the, the bottom line is a legislated, I think it's 50 or 60% by 2030. Look, what all the independents would want is a, a market-based mechanism. Remember that? Remember Rudd's ETS? Remember Julia's carbon tax? You know, remember the sanity of, of, of John Hewson and, um, and Malcolm Turnbull on having a, a market-based mechanism? I really can't see any point in, in asking them for more detail. Once they've given you the, the target and the independent body, then let us pray that the parliament can, can get together and do something about it. On the other core thing of integrity, there are just some sensational policies coming out from Zoe Daniel, from, from um, Sophie Scomps, from Allegra Spender, a suite of reforms, donation reform, open diaries, a five-year ban on, on politicians becoming lobbyists in their, in their um, areas, a parliamentary standards bill so that there's some ethics. Most of them back Helen Haynes's bill. I mean, if, if we've got a, a balance of power, we are going to be able to clean up our democracy. Um, what I'm arguing to, to candidates at the moment is that they should get out there and say it will be a bottom-line condition if I've got the balance of power, that we have Helen Haynes' ICAC bill or a similar bill. And they're saying, oh, well, you know, how can I say that? Because, you know, I'm in a coalition seat and I say, I bet you 100% that Morrison would agree to that to stay in power. What do you reckon, Tim? Absolutely. I wouldn't trust him at all. How about instead of this relentless pressure on the independents about who they'd back in a hung parliament. I mean, who, who knows what the options are? How about asking Morrison that if it was a condition of you staying in power that you have a, a strong federal ICAC, what would you do? Well, he, he, he wouldn't answer it. Wouldn't answer it. Say it's hypothetical? Would he? Yeah. He can't yeah, because the whole liberal attack is on the independents. I mean, the lack of intelligence, the lack of imagination, the lack of front foot by the journalists makes me cry. Yeah. No, absolutely. Tim, as I alluded to a moment ago, you've written about this, the independents and their 
the feasibility of what they're proposing in terms of climate change and, and taking yeah. on board all that Margot just said. What's your take on that today? My feeling with the independents is I'm giving them the benefit of every doubt at this stage because I think that there is a genuine case, as Margot says, that this is a once-in-a-generation opportunity to really clean up the mess that our, particularly our federal politics, has become. And it is a duopoly that shouldn't exist anymore. And the, the fact that there are these actual strong independent candidates in those rich seats available is a great thing. The reinvigoration that they've done of grassroots democracy um, in their electorates is fantastic. I know I've spoken at um, events for in Warringah and in McKellar um, in the very early stages, like the first one was years ago, you know, when... Um, Louise Hislop was first putting together Voices of Warringah, um, and I went up and spoke for them, and it was really very noticeable how um, enthusiastic that you know, relatively large group of people was I spoke to in a bookshop in Manly were about the prospect of, at that stage, getting rid of Tiny Abbott and finding someone who could represent their interests better in the parliament. The same sort of enthusiasm was um, evident in McKellar when I was up there in, must have been at the end of 2019, speaking to them. But what was also very apparent, especially, you know, in a well-educated, well-to-do uh, electorates like that, was um, a, a fair bit of misunderstanding about the political process and, and, and really being... I actually said to them, I think, in McKellar that, you know, because I, I was getting told that, you know, Jason Felinski, he's okay and he seems to be okay on, um, you know, he says the right things about climate change and stuff. This, this is a measure of how much things have changed over the last couple of years, but they, they were saying this. And I actually said during that talk, I said, yeah, you know, he, he might be all of that, but he'll vote the same way as Barnaby Joyce. And, and you could see the light go on when I said that, because that, I don't think people, they really understood the notion of party discipline um, and stuff like that. There wasn't much room within that party system for alternative views to get any sort of traction. You know, they've done the right thing. So so I give them a huge props for getting this all organised and doing what they're doing. When you spoke to Kylie Tink, she said, you know, she it was only after Morrison came to power that she realised that the Liberal Party had changed. It wasn't the party that she and her family had supported their whole life. And I, I heard that and I thought, well, you know, like, where have you been? It's been obvious for a long time that they haven't been the party of Menzies, which is basically what she was describing as her understanding of the Liberal Party. They haven't been the party of Menzies for ages. Howard wasn't the party of Menzies, let alone Morrison. So, okay, so, you know, this is a learning process for these independents as well. They're figuring out this stuff very quickly and smartly as they go along. So back to your question, Peter, about, you know, how are they actually going to respond to climate change? I, I think they're on a learning curve about that as well. And, and when they actually, if, if they get into a position where they can implement some policy, again, it'll be a very steep learning curve. And I, I've got reasonable confidence that they'll make good decisions in that environment. So 
my answer to your question is I'm not too concerned about pushing them too hard at the moment on, on giving those sorts of specific answers. I actually trust them enough to think that if they get into a position where they can legislate, that they will listen to the right people and they will start to understand, just as they've come to understand the failings in the political system that brought them into politics in the first place once, once they kind of figured all that out. And, and they've done brilliantly in, in, in making themselves viable candidates in a, in a very short time, in a very tough environment, with a media that, as Margot said, is, is, is out to get, well, certain sections of the media that are out, out to get them. So I think they've done really well. What does concern me is I, I don't honestly expect them to say definitively who they will back, but just from a, a citizen's point of view, I do not see how they can maintain any integrity in their position by reinstalling an LNP government, even if it's with a different leader. It's not going to be enough to get rid of Scott Morrison and, and put Josh Frydenberg in or something. That whole side of politics is rotten to the core and changing the, the face on it is not going to make any difference. And I think it would really fly in the face of their basic message of integrity and independence to put a Liberal government or LNP government back into power. I just do not see how they can do it. This is why I think they should make a federal ICAC a fundamental condition. And, and, and I'm sure Morrison would say yes. But if he said no, and they've also got to, you know, you must have serious action on climate change. If he says no to both of those, I truly believe, my line um, on, the, on, on this matter is that an independent elected as an MP would take the options on the table back to the electorate and ask them what they want to do. Because that is absolutely fundamental. If you want to be the voice of the electorate on a question of, of that, you have to do that. And I, honestly, I would not be surprised if a seat like North Sydney or whatever said, Ugh, all right, so if Labor's offering you a, a, a suite of, of democracy reforms and serious action on climate change, you could give confidence and supply to Labor and then on the crossbench, keep Labor honest and, um, and vote down bills your electorate doesn't like. That's a possibility. I mean, if you've got electors in a wealthy seat saying, we want an independent, and the two core issues the government says no on, I think an electorate would consider that. I, I, I really do. I absolutely do. The other possibility, which Allegra raised in, in my interview with her, she could consider giving confidence and supply to Morrison, but work across the parliament to enact serious climate change action and a federal ICAC. Now, that is very unstable, but the numbers are there. This is the point. There are a large majority of this parliament, if they had their own vote, who would vote for a strong federal ICAC and would vote for, for serious action on climate change. The majority of the people are being stymied by the dominant factions in the Liberal and National Party. If there's a balance of power situation, things will change big time. The idea that Morrison in any, or, or even the National Party, you know, the LNP in general, is going to pay anything other than lip service 
to anything to do with climate change and an integrity commission. I mean, he's told us on the election campaign that he's not going to, there'll never be a federal ICAC sort of thing. Um, and I know he can go back on that if if it means keeping power, but but that's the point. You know, that's the only reason he'll be doing it. There'll be no integrity associated with it. He'll be doing everything he can behind the scenes to white ant it at every point, no matter what he says publicly, no matter what he says to them as well. They would just be incredibly naive, I think, to think that they could... Um, have that sort of influence and that that would lead to anything other than probably um, a term of chaos. I really agree with you that they have to go back to their electorate and talk openly about this. I would like all of the negotiations, one of their conditions to be all the negotiations are as public as possible. No backroom deals, no giving Morrison a chance or whoever it is a chance to back him into a corner in private. It's all got to be out in the open. But I would also say that just offering it back to their own electorates isn't enough. This is another thing that they have to learn about democracy. Once you are a representative in the parliament, you're there on behalf of everybody not just your electorate. You have a particular obligation to your electorate, but at the end of the day, you have an obligation to the country. And and that's a step up that they, they keep talking about, you know, doing what's right for our electorate. It's bigger than that. Once you're in parliament, it's bigger than that. So they can't just say, my electorate said we should do this. You've, you've got to govern for everybody, not just for the people who voted for you. It's worth mentioning in passing that Zoe Daniel, amongst other independents, has made clear that anticipating a very intense and tricky period of negotiation, perhaps with the hung parliament, that part of the equation for her would be assessing, I'm going to use the word sincerity, but the feasible deliverability of something that Scott Morrison says about climate change or ICAC, that they have to go, how deliverable is this and how sincere. What a funny word to be using. That's right. And I mean, it, it's just so obvious that you could trust Scott Morrison. <laughs> but, 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 but I think that's pretty easy. Like what the independent M- MPs didn't get much coverage said just before the campaign was called or just after, I can't remember. So it was Zali, Andrew Wilkie, Rebecca Sharkey and Helen Haynes. Um, mm. I think basically at the urging of Wilkie said, we're not going to do any deals. We're not going to have any de facto coalition like under Gillard. Because remember when Gillard promised yeah. Wilkie as, 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 as his condition that he should do something about pokey reform and then she didn't? So what they've said is that the only arrangement would be confidence and supply. So that they, that they, there's, no, there's going to be no grand coalition. So if you've got, co- if you've got confidence and, and, and supply and you can um, do anything else that you want on, on the crossbench – that's a pretty big stick to hold over, Morrison. Yeah, it is. But honestly, I just I just don't think it's going to work. He, you know, what do they do if he doesn't bring forward the legislation, for instance, that we can all vote on? Because the government, whoever's government, has, has that control in the House. The, or they can vote it down or, um, you know, have it not be heard, et cetera, et cetera. There's just too many outs for that for somebody like him to delay and prevaricate and get around this sort of stuff. I agree with you. If you are elected on two major platforms, that's what you're elected on, you can't go back on it. 
You can't. But, but because what? You, you can't. You can't. I'll, I'll tell you why you can't. I'll tell you why you can't. Because okay. the essence of an Independence Day campaign is you have got to get Liberal, Labor and Green voters to to go on the common ground, which is those three issues they're standing on, right? That is your base. If you betray that base, you are out. You will not be re-elected. It's that simple. You have got a coalition of voters across the political spectrum that have said you're, a, you're, you're our representative. And if Labor can't dig its out of its hole, Labor should win this fucking thing by a landslide on the performance of this government. But if, if yeah, they absolutely. can't manage that due to their own incompetence and fear and, and the, um, the structural barriers of a Murdoch media and a Clive Palmer and, and the West Australians running very hard for Morrison at the moment, so it Stokes mm. is on his side as well, that yeah. if they can't come through this time, I just think any form of accountability, democracy or, is, is just gone. Then what we'll see is a breakup, like in the US we'll see a breakup. Yeah, no, I think so. As I said earlier... This is a once-in-a-generation opportunity to get this right, I think. There's a lot at stake. It will have to reinvigorate participatory democracy on the left and the right. Tim and Marco, I want to start to bring our discussion today for this first pod for Federal Election 2022 to a close, but with a couple of sub-themes. Firstly, you both know that we started these podcasts back in mid-2020 around coronavirus world. We're in the cutest rigours of the lockdowns, COVID numbers. Now, look, in Victoria today, nearly 8,000 cases, new cases, community cases, over 400 people in hospital, many in ICU. That's just Victoria. So as we discuss the living with COVID ideology and the gaslighting that constantly occurred around that via people like Berejiklian and particularly Scott Morrison, that ideology won out. But the virus continues. We're heading into winter. The variants keep evolving. And public health keeps deteriorating. Can I mention the two words long COVID? Completely invisible to us, but there are thousands of people with long COVID. So what role is COVID playing in this election? Any at all, Tim? Well, it's disappeared, hasn't it? Like it's it's just not on the media radar, it's not on the political radar. People are dealing with it individually, which is kind of how we were driven to we've been driving in that direction from the very beginning. There's been some powerful voices who've wanted to do that from the very beginning. The um, Clearly, the vaccinations made a difference, but even the third vaccination thing seems to have stalled quite considerably uh, in Australia. People just don't seem to be as concerned about it anymore. Though, as, as you say, you know, there are these real issues of potentially new strains, long covid I know some people who are suffering from long COVID who've had COVID since almost day one of this, and it's a it's a really debilitating, horrible disease. It really does some damage. So the the long term effects of this uh, are going to be with us for a long time. We're going to be dealing with it for a long time. But as a a political issue in the moment, it's just gone. You know when um, Morrison said, "Oh, you know, you don't have to like your dentist; you just have to respect him." I just thought, well, why doesn't Labor say? But you wouldn't want to go to a dentist that gets to order the right anaesthetic, who goes on holiday in the middle of the fucking operation. You want to have a good dentist, don't you? You want to have a dentist that governs, don't you? That orders the, the dental equipment of the rat test when he tells you to suck it up. 
Could I finish with this point that you and I have been tossing around, Tim, and that's about the interviewability of someone like Scott Morrison, specifically of Scott Morrison. You've used the term in some of your writing, his barrage technique, and goes back to that recent Lee Sales interview on the 7.30 report. You both know that I'm very interested in analysing in great detail political interviews and looking at the dynamics within them. But after watching Scott Morrison going way back before he was Prime Minister, I think I I did a thing, Margot, for no fibs about breaking down an interview he did when he was Immigration Minister in detail. He is, in many ways, Tim, someone you can't interview in a conventional journalistic sense. And I use that word conventional advisedly. He smashes the conventions, doesn't he? He uses what you describe as the barrage technique. He just craps on. He talks over the interviewer, etc., etc. He's got that down pat now. So we have a Prime Minister, Tim, who is, for all intents and purposes, in conventional journalism, uninterviewable. So all the things we've been talking about, confronting him with those in our democracy, God knows how these debates will go. They'll be a mess, I suspect. We'll see how they play out. But what do we do? What do we confront with an uninterviewable Prime Minister, Tim? The key point to remember is not just the barrage, but it's a barrage that is backed up with a complete divorce from any kind of conventional morality or decency. He'll say whatever he wants to say, and if it contradicts what he said five minutes ago, he doesn't care. It'll get him through the moment. Um, So that's the issue. What do you do with a person like that? You can't do anything because they'll just say what, what they want to say in a given moment. But, but, you know, he's very clever at it. He's very good at it. He, he, he runs rings around everybody in, in the press gallery. Not, none of them can really nail him down on anything. I was thinking back on that interview he did with Waleed Ali um, a while ago. He didn't really lay a glove on him either. He, he's just quicksilver. The only thing the media can do is talk about that process. Lee Sales did that interview the other day. Fine. Okay. Like everybody else, she failed to get anywhere with him. But there's nothing stopping them. That was a pre-record. You know, there's nothing stopping them following the segment with a, you know, a forensic look at what actually happened in that. And, and, and the way, you know, talk about the way that he avoided the question and, and fact check him and, and, and do all that sort of stuff. There's, there's no reason that they just have to leave it at the interview that they got. They can analyze it. And I think that's about the only hope you've got with someone like Morrison, that you, it has to be, un, it, was, it was like Trump, you know, he, he got away with this stuff constantly. So you need some other mechanism post facto, probably, to go back and, and look at what actually just happened and actually do an analysis. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Margot. We'll catch up in this internet coffee shop in the very near future. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Good to talk to you. Good to see you, Margot. Great to see you again, Tim. You can follow all three of us on Twitter. Our handles are in the on-screen text for this podcast. If you'd like to email us at The Transit Zone, here is our email address, transitzonepod at gmail.com. We always welcome your comments, your questions, your ideas for new podcast episodes. Transitzonepod at gmail.com. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening. And please join us again soon right here in The Transit Zone. You are now leaving the transit zone.